A Tiny Revolution features adults having adult conversations, which means that adult language is probably going to be present, just so you know. From the Bedlam Podcast Network, this is A Tiny Revolution, celebrating our everyday victories while telling the stories and having the conversations that actually matter. I'm Kevin Garcia, and this week I'm coming to you live from the City of Angels, Los Angeles. I don't think they say it like that. That was feel very Jewish um, in my... I don't know. Anyways, hey everyone, welcome to A Tiny Revolution. We're excited. We're excited. I'm excited that you're here with me this week. Um, It's been a crazy, not really crazy, it's been an interesting couple of days out here. I got here last Wednesday, met with my friend Brian Tirada, who I'm excited to share his work with you eventually. um, We're scheming. We're scheming on some stuff that I'm going to share with you in the next couple weeks once we have it together, but I'm excited for you to hear that. Um, I'm out here in LA for the Reformation Project National Conference. I'm going to be leading worship with them and basically just palling around. So if you're coming to the conference and you want to grab a coffee or something, tweet at me. I'd love to hang out and get to know you more. And if you are someone who's still on the fence about coming to the Reformation Project National Conference, get off the fence and get to LA. That's all I gotta say. You can get all the information for that at reformationproject.org slash LA. You can still register. And on top of that, there's gonna be insight, insight, on-site, on-site registration for people who are literally here just last minute. You don't wanna do it before you get here. Additionally to that, not this coming weekend, but the following weekend, uh, the 29th and 30th, I'm going to be in Birmingham, Alabama, doing a house show. Uh, More details to come on that. And I am also going to be leading worship at Radical Hope Church. Um, All the information for that can be found at thekevingarcia.com slash speaking. And that's really, really exciting to say the least. Um... I think that's everything. I was going to do a segment of decent advice this week, but because um, we're driving around LA getting stuff ready for the conference, we didn't exactly have time to sit down and record any advice. So I'm going to put that off probably for next week, but thank you to everyone who sent in questions. I have them saved on a document. They are going to be used. Either I'm going to answer it, me and Amelia are going to answer it. Maybe me and somebody else are going to answer it. I don't know. But we're going to tackle your questions in the next couple of weeks. So thanks for your patience on that. Um, right. So I don't really have an opening segment this week. Um, so we're just going to jump right into my conversation with the Reverend Broderick Greer. It was super fun sitting down with him. I've been a fan of Broderick's really since I came across him on Twitter. And what I think is funny, um, and you'll hear him say this in our conversation is that he's not really out. Like, even if he didn't have the following that he did, he'd still be saying and doing the things that he's doing because It just kind of naturally flows from who he is. So I'm a big fan, but a little bit about him. He is a 2015 graduate of the Virginia Theological Seminary and is the curate at Grace St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Memphis, Tennessee. He offers lectures and facilitates conversations at the intersections of social media, American history, queer theology, black theology, human rights, and racial justice. His work has appeared in The Guardian, Religion News Service, The Washington Post, The Huffington Post, and he was also the keynote at GCN last year, which you can still view at gaychristian.net. And he hosts a really killer podcast called Theology Live, where he talks to everyone from artists to historians about what theology looks like in our everyday lives. And you can check that out in the podcast store. But here we go. This is my conversation with the Reverend Broderick Greer. 
And just a note about the recording, there is a little bit of background noise in the beginning, but don't mind it. It'll be gone in just a few minutes. I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas uh, with my parents, and I have one brother who is two years younger than me in a very kind of large extended family. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was raised by her mother and my dad was raised by his two parents and my grand, my three grandparents lived maybe five minutes away from us. So we never had to go to daycare. Um, they always picked us up from school and if they couldn't pick us up, then an aunt picked us up or a cousin. Um, so I was surrounded by lots of love as a child and mm-hmm. could feel that. And we grew up in a um, black missionary Baptist church mm-hmm. on a poorer side of town from where I grew up. It was the church that my mom was baptized in and that my parents were married in and that my grandmother was the minister of music at wow. for 40 years. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. It is. And um, so I grew up singing in my grandmother's choir and, you know, we would run down to the piano after the service, you know, the two and a half, three hour service. <laughs> of course. And, um, you know, grew up with very spirit filled preaching and singing and music and dancing. And so many of our church members were, you know, what I would understand now as deeply impoverished, but... Mm there was a resilience and a joy that was contagious in that space. And, um, I draw from that every day. You are a, um, priest at a Episcopal church now, which is probably quite a, quite a difference from your upbringing, right? Yes. What drew you to the Episcopal tradition over any other sort of expression of Christianity? So when I was 13, I started, going to a church of Christ and they're a mainly white Southern fundamentalist evangelical denomination Mm. that is best known for singing acapella. They don't use instruments because they believe that instruments are forbidden by the new Testament. Really? Yes. And ended up going to a church of Christ college in Tennessee um, when I was 18. And while there started reading this Anglican bishop named N.T. Wright. Mm, right. And I thought, well, you know, if I, I would just want to go to any church that is doing what he's saying. Right. And this, you know, these ideas about a new creation and the eighth day of creation and um, the centrality of resurrection and the Paschal mystery and the Christian faith. And so a friend and I went to an Episcopal church and I immediately fell in love with the liturgy and with the Book of Common Prayer, but was not really set on, you know, changing over to a faith that was more hierarchical. And the tradition I came from, they, the ministers were not ordained. Mm -hmm. They only went by brother and they were only men. Right. And um, so I was very kind of put off by calling the priest father and, um, you know, the organ music and things like that. So it was kind of a mixed bag for me, but I had, there was a wonderful priest at the parish who really shepherded me 
through a difficult time of coming to terms with my sexual orientation and reconciling that with faith, mm-hmm. uh, which was really just a series of conversations about reading the Bible. You know, how do you read a read the Bible in a way that doesn't make you feel like shit as a gay person? What a concept. Yes. And, um, and how do you read the Bible in a way that is compassionate toward other minority groups? Mm-hmm. And so through that process, I was eventually confirmed in the Episcopal Church in 2010 when I was 20. Hmm. Yeah, so um, That's I think it, it, was, it was the history, it was the connection to history. You know, the Episcopal Church is called Episcopal because of the Greek word episkopos, which means bishop. Or oversight, and so we have this long, long connection of bishops, um, and that we would say goes back to the time of Jesus uh, right. from the apostles, and so really that sacramental connection to a pair of hands that um, rest on your head at your confirmation um, is very powerful to Episcopalians, and is what drew me, you know, to this Anglican expression of faith. I think what I like about your work and like your presence is that you're so integrated with yourself. If that makes sense. Like you are very much like I am a black man. I am very much a queer individual. I am a Christian and all of these things belong in the, my conversation. I can't leave part of myself at the door. Do you ever find that like in your work that people are asking you to leave cer- certain parts of yourself out of the room? If that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, all the time. Um, it's so funny thinking about various places that I'm invited to speak. I'm always nervous about that sort of desire that a lot of audiences have to parse speakers and parse personalities and stories apart. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'll see this upsurge in people who will follow me uh, when I'm, you know, when a police shooting happens and I'm, tweeting things uh, that resonate with them about Mm pro-blackness. And then three minutes later, I tweet something about being gay and they're gone. You know, Mm -hmm. they unfollow very quickly. And it's because people, um, one guy a few days ago said, I do believe that LGBT people are, and this is a person who considers himself pro-black, that he believes that LGBT people should be protected under the law, but he does not agree with gay marriage, of course, which is just so, you know, it's, it's ridiculous that you, that people think that in some way that LGBTQ people or that black people, that women, trans people are only deserving of their partial support. And when you have, you know, partial support is not support. Mm. Um, and in really, in many instances, it can be a form of abuse. Right. I had, I had a um, pretty well-known evangelical evangelical leader send me a message one day that said something to the effect of, you know, I'm defending you to a lot of my friends. And I'm assuming that he's talking about white progressive Christian leaders. And I said, you know, I don't need your, I don't need anyone's defense. I'm not doing this for money. I'm not doing this for anyone's approval. Or so that any, you know, so that people will like me. And in some way, I think that that's related to the piece of people 
there are people who view me or understand me as a progressive Christian leader. When it comes to LGBT stuff, and then they're turned off when I talk about white supremacy. Right. And for me, it's all one, you know, we're, we're really trying to defeat one monster. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most concise way of referring to that monster is, you know, white heteropatriarchal capitalism. Um, That's a mouthful. It is. It is. And, and not only is it a mouthful, but it's a toxic combination of mm-hmm. oppressions yep. that um, much of white Christian theology really undergirds and supports, uh, whether it knows it or not. You know, you take one dagger to the monster about white supremacy and people are like, oh, that's great. And you take another dagger to the monster on heteropatriarchy and they're like, oh, well, that kind of hurt a little bit. Right. And, um, you know, one activist that I really look up to, DeRay McKesson, says, mm-hmm. either you see all of me or you're lying. Ooh, and that's good. Yeah, which I really like. And I, I think that about myself, like either you see all of me and that is a person who is unapologetically black, unapologetically queer, a priest, a son, a brother, a cousin. Um, either you see all of me or you're lying because I'm not going to lie about myself mm-hmm. and about my experiences. And I expect you to be as truthful about my identity as I am. And this is one of the saddest things that I hear people say is, um, and it's mainly people who are just coming to terms with sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And they'll say things like, you know, being gay is only a part of who I am. Oh, it's such a strange thing for me to hear too. Yeah. It's like, okay, so when you are killed for being gay or, you know, are they only, is only your leg going to die or what? You know, if I'm only killed for, you know, if being black is only part of who I am um, or is only part of who Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and um, Akai Gurley and all of these other people who have been lynched by police, if they're only part black, then why are, why, why are they all dead? Mm. Um, and, that's just something that I, I don't understand. As a black gay clergyman, like with everything that like all the police brutality that's been happening, the church I think has kind of done like a shit, like overall, like the big C church, especially white evangelicalism has done a shitty job of talking about it. Um, and as somebody who embodies all of these different intersections of Christian, black, gay, what needs to happen in order to start moving people towards actually doing something? I don't know. I think that is a question really for white Christian leaders. Um, I don't know what it will take for them to finally sign on to the liberation of black people or of queer people. I'm not sure. Because we've, you know, we thought it was maybe some of the police brutality. We thought maybe it would be the pulse shooting. We thought that, you know, we could go on and on and on. And um, for the most part, many of them are still radio silent about the brutality that we face um, verbally, socially, politically, physically. 
domestically. I, I don't know. I don't know what it will take. And that's kind of heartbreaking. No, it's not, not kind of. It is. It just, it's so frustrating for me. Like, I don't understand, like, why people aren't. It's kind of like, there's, what is that phrase? It's like, if you're not enraged, you're not paying attention. People are dying and you're still preaching about, you know, whatever the hell it is you're preaching about. Do you find that what happens in, uh, in the headlines or even in the political realm influences what you teach about on Sundays? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it does. And I say that with a pause because, Mm. um, I don't understand the good news of God in Christ apart from the real world. Right. You know, that, that that God came in Christ to a particular people at a particular time with a specific language specific accent, specific challenges, a specific context says something about the way that baptized people share in Christ's ministry. So, you know, Christ comes and, you know, comes on the scene in Luke 4, proclaiming good news to the poor and liberation for imprisoned people, uh, freedom for people who are enslaved, in the context of a Roman empire that's occupying his people. And Paul, St. Paul, St. Peter, the earliest saints and martyrs are constantly speaking about their own social context that they find them, found themselves in. And I think that the church is at its best when it does that. Um, mm-hmm. That this, There isn't some kind of universal kernel core message that's out there. Um, The good news is at its core incarnation that God takes on flesh in Christ. And that says something very specific about the world in which the gospel is preached and which the gospel is announced. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if I'm out here, you know, in a, in a pulpit on Sunday, espousing the so-called universal truths of love and of justice and of, you know, godliness and righteousness. You know, I use all these words that have almost no meaning or significance or even the word God, if I'm, you know, up using the the word God. Right. And it has nothing to say about the world in which I live. I'm, I'm doing everyone a disservice. Right. And actually, everyone's better off if I just stay at home and take a nap. If the Christian faith does not have something real to say, then it's really wasting everyone's time. And it's no better than some other commercialized you know, franchise message, some other 30-second um, advertisement on YouTube that's extremely annoying. Right. Um, that could be played, you know, it's, it's this whole capitalist aspect of the gospel. You know, it can be played in the Philippines and be just as resonant as it is in Tanzania. Hmm. Um, and that's not how the gospel operates. It needs to resonate with people exactly where they are. Um, and it will be offensive to some, it will be wonderful to others. It'll be good news to some, it'll be terrible news for others. Um, the gospel, the good news of God in Christ is not always going to be received or heard in the same way. 
And it is the task of, of baptized people who preach to read their, you know, read your Bible, read your context, read your people. The Bible is not the only text that needs to be used in a sermon on a Sunday. Say more about that, that last part. Yeah, I mean, the text of our lives, ah. the text of pop culture, the text of contemporary music, what stories are people telling through movies, what stories are being told on the back page of our newspapers, mm-hmm. um, what stories are being told but not heard. There's plenty, any good preacher will know, there's plenty of sermon material in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a matter, much of the time, of the preacher not listening. Right. Uh, and you can't, and that's the thing, you can't hear the Bible in a vacuum. Yep. Come on, say I that mean, again. You're, you know, you, you have to hear the Bible in the context of your own world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is what really draw, you know, drew me and continues to draw me to Anglican Christianity is this piece that the incarnation, Christmas, Epiphany, that whole season is so important to Episcopalians. Right. Because it says something very particular about God, that God is interested in humanity. God is interested in creation. Um, God is not resigned from suffering. God is not removed from oppression. God is in the middle of this mess with us. Mm-hmm. Um, people often say that Jesus puts the messy in Messiah. Ooh, that's good. And, uh, and I can appreciate that because I don't need a God or a Jesus or a Holy Spirit that is far away. I need something that's imminent, available, accessible uh, to be with me in my suffering now. Mm -hmm. And um, preaching that is removed from that suffering and oppression uh, perpetuates it, honestly. Could you, like, could you, like, for people who've never heard that sort of term, can you kind of un- unpack that idea, theology as survival? Because I just think it's it's fascinating and just yeah. really appropriate for the time we live in. Yeah, so I, I noticed in my own writing and Twitter presence and conversations with friends that uh, it would mostly be white cisgender men, whether, I mean, some of them were gay. Um, who were very, very deeply critical of liberation theology. Mm-hmm. And, or I guess better said, liberation theologies. And I just couldn't myself to understand what their issue with these theologies were. And it began to dawn on me that they would relegate people like James Cone or Marcella Altos-Reed, or Emily Towns, or other womanist, or uh, Muharista, or black theologians, kind of to this hyphenated theology, Mm -hmm. that they are hyphenated theologians. And then, but Karl Barth is just a theologian. theologian, Yeah, hyphenated meaning like, if you are a black theologian, or a queer theologian, not just a theologian, because theologian would just mean a white cisgender uh, straight pastor. Yeah, so it's Karl okay. Barth. It's um, John Piper. 
John Piper, Mark Driscoll, uh, you know, just people who are just respected as being theologians and nothing else. And I began to think, um, oh my goodness, well, those people are just theologians because they're understood as being normal, as being, as having an objective understanding of God, which is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. No one does. Mm-hmm. Um, and on and on and on. And I came across this lovely article by James, Al- lovely interview of James Allison, who is a, a Roman Catholic priest and theologian, who said that he is a gay man had to do theology from a place of survival. Mm-hmm. And I began thinking, oh, so anyone doing theology as a form of survival, as a way to kind of justify even their own existence in the world and in the church, to really justify their existence as baptized people in the life of the church, these people are the ones who are kind of relegated to the, to the margins of theology. And so I said... While some do theology from the purchase of power, and I'm very specific, the Karl Barts, Stanley Harawas, Will Willimons of the world. Some of us read, you know, non-white, non-cisgender, non-male identifying people do theology as a form of survival, as a means of just living. Of a me- as a means of just making sense of the world in which we're brutalized so deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was kind of I'm kind of riff- riffing off of Father Allison's idea, but I I'm riffing because I've experienced it mm-hmm. that people think you know oh this isn't valid you know so they'll call something a liberation theology because um, they need to write it off or I grew up or I found many white Southern evangelicals who, or former evangelicals who I've talked to who will say that liberation theology was specifically condemned from their pulpits growing up. And I think, Oh, well that's interesting because even though my pastor might not have called it liberation theology, that's what he was preaching every Sunday. Mm-hmm. That God is on the side of the oppressed. God is on the side of people at the margins. God is on the side of people who are impoverished. I think it helps give some credence to what so many of us have experienced, that mm-hmm. our experiences of God are not seen as valuable as how white men who are straight and cisgender experience God. Right. But, you know, I'm not going to sit outside of their conferences and say, I want you to listen to me. I'm not going to ask them if they'll invite me to speak. People who want to hear about my experience of God will hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to be in this, you know, I don't want to be at the center of attention. I'm not trying to sell myself to get a book deal. You know, I'm not trying to be a bigger voice. I, you know, and that's the thing. None of this was ever anticipated or planned anyway. I never cared to have any attention on Twitter. I'm, I'm saying the same stuff I've been saying on Twitter for six or seven years. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I, it doesn't matter if I have 19 and a half thousand followers. If I have 19, I'm going to say what I'm going to say. So it does nothing for me to be on a conference stage or on a podcast. You know, I don't care because I know that there are lots of people who are intentionally not inviting me into those spaces. And if I let that, if I really thought about that, that probably would 
you know, make me sad that mm-hmm. people want to discount my voice because I'm black, because I'm gay. Mm-hmm. But that that's a matter of, of having, you know, a very solid core mm-hmm. and really being in a place of security about your identity and knowing that what you're saying is not right just because it's right. It's right because you've experienced it and you're only speaking from your own experience. So, yeah, yeah, I, I don't care for big conferences. I don't care for being a name mm-hmm. um, because many of the people who I reached out to to try to be in conversation with before I was a quote name um, only started to pay attention after I was a name. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so, yeah. What's life like in Memphis? Just like with like, do you have like a squad, if you will, of humans that you do life with? Um, yeah, a, a, quite a, about three friends live here that I went to college with, which is really nice. Mm. And really through them, I've gotten to know a few more people um, in town. I've only been here for a year, so I've tried to be gentle with myself when it comes to kind of racking up friendships. Of course. Um, but there's a, also a small group of us who are very close in college who have multiple group texts and we mm-hmm. all talk constantly and friends from seminary who are the same, but life is good here. I mean, I, I really enjoy living in Memphis. It, it's a city with a lot of texture, a lot of history, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of important things have happened here. A lot of things have been neglected here. Uh, there are huge disparities um, along race lines when it comes to education right. and household income, huge disparities when it comes to, not disparities, huge blind spots of mm-hmm. white churches in the area, huge blind spots even of black churches in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, people seem to, as a public in our city, uh, have been more excited about Blue Lives Matter than Black Lives Matter. Good. There was a what? A, actually, if I'm not mistaken, I have been told, and this may just be urban legend, but the whole Blue Lives Matter moniker started in Memphis. That's upsetting. And so there's a huge culture of police support here. Um, even one Sunday, a, a few local pastors decided that they and their parishioners were going to wear blue. Uh, I think this was what July. This was like July 24th, I think. They all decided they were going to blue wear blue uh, to show their support of local police. So, um, so that's kind of um, that's you know Memphis. Thing. Memphis, like so many other American cities, is a mixed bag. Uh, it has its beautiful pieces of it. It has its grotesque parts, but that is the story of being a human. You know, like. <laughs> Right. So it's great. You know, great music, great food, um, lots of different people. It's a great, you know, we're on the Mississippi River. It's a crossroads of cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I love being here. I like you, Broderick Greer. Do you want to be friends? I thought that we were already friends, but I guess <gasps> I was mistaken. No, it's, I always I, I always ask people first because I don't want to assume anything. Because for me, it's it's one of these things where, like, 
you know, I could, like, for example, I could also say that I'm friends with Ellen DeGeneres if, because, like, I know Ellen through Twitter and her presence in the world, but I don't really know her and I'm not really friends with her. It's that weird parasocial relationship thing. But now, we've said, well, I have coffee in my hand right now. I don't know if you have coffee or tea in yours, but as far as I'm concerned, we've shared a cup. <laughs> All right, that was my conversation with the Reverend Broderick Greer. If you want to connect with him, check him out on Twitter at Broderick Greer. That's B-R-O-D-E-R-I-C-K-G-R-E-E-R. You can also find him on Facebook at The Rev Broderick Greer and on his website and blog, broderickgreer.com. Before I let you go, I just want to let you know that A Tiny Revolution is part of the Bedlam Podcast Network, a collection of creatives sounding off on things that matter. Whether you want to talk about faith, you want to talk about movies, you want to talk about general creativity, we have something for you. Check out the Bedlam Podcast Network at bedlampodcasts.com. And if you are someone who's like an author, a social entrepreneur, you have a small business, you can actually advertise with us for a really, really affordable rate. Um, You're going to reach a diverse amount of people across all different types of uh, social circles and, you know, get your product and get your voice heard with the Bedlam Podcast Network advertising. So again, that's bedlampodcast.com. Last thing. If you enjoy this podcast, do me a favor, go over to the iTunes store and leave me a rating. It actually really helps with visibility and getting um, people connected with the kind of work that we're doing here. Additionally, if you want to help make this podcast and my blog a little bit more financially uh, feasible, because right now I do a lot of this work pro bono, um, and there's a lot of -of out-of-pocket expenses for hosting Um, for certain stock photography, for the kind of editing tools I want to invest to make the product better, you can actually help support this through becoming a patron on Patreon. Patreon is a really great platform for supporting the creatives in your life that you enjoy on a daily and weekly basis. So whether it's a YouTuber you like or someone like me who's creating content for Uh, LGBT individuals, resources for people to understand their faith better. Patreon helps you support them financially. So if you've enjoyed the blog, if you've enjoyed this podcast, head over to Patreon and become a patron. Whether it's $1, $2, $5, $50 if you're feeling real spicy. Um, There's actually some really fantastic perks that come along with it, including an exclusive newsletter that comes to all of my Patreon supporters, um, Google Hangouts, t-shirts that come out once a quarter. So if you like this and you like me or you like the work or you think that this work is important, I would implore you, support the creatives in your life and, you know, if you have a couple dollars, throw them my way. Again, you can go to patreon.com slash thekevingarcia to learn more. Additionally, connect with me on all the social medias. I'm a really fun follow. I usually tweet about um, coffee and tacos and, you know, women, gay stuff, all the stuff. Amelia's in the background being sassy. You got anything to say, ma'am? She's shaking her head. She don't want to talk to y'all. She's plum embarrassed now. Thanks for joining me for this week's episode of A Tiny Revolution. I hope you loved it, and I hope that you remember that you are loved as well. I'm Kevin Garcia, and I'll talk to you next week. Mwah! She's shaking her head. She don't want to talk to y'all. She's plumb embarrassed now.